Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig and welcome to this week's episode of the Full 60. I am thrilled to be joined right now from your, uh, your basement, right? We're confirming it's the basement, Heels. This is a, um, a three daughters, so this is my dance salon in the basement with all kinds of dance trophies behind me. And Craig, I'm giving you the ticket up. <laughs> Already? I, well, I don't want to presume anything. Maybe we save that for the end. Maybe I don't deserve the kick it up award. A couple, couple songs. I'm happy to do that. But COVID hit and uh, dad got relegated to the basement and his office, which is lovely and upstairs and has a great view, is now uh, reconfigured into um, a Wii game, PlayStation, a PlayStation, and a karaoke station. It is now the Healy Lounge. <laughs> so anyone under 20 wants to come over knock yourself out but i'm stuck in the dooms and dregs of the basement and i don't even know what day it is or if there's even the sun now uh let me do a proper introduction glenn healy is here of the nhl alumni association of course uh nhl player storied career media everything nhlpa um heels there's so much i want to get into and um but here's where i want to start because i remember watching an interview you did about a year ago. And one of the things, I mean, you're so passionate about working with the alumni and the former players. And one of the things you said kind of at the outset of all of this was, you know, mental health is going to be an issue for the retired players. And, um, you you know, and you're like, you know, a year from now, we have to be prepared for that. Guys who are recently retired and then all of a sudden they're quarantined. Like, it's hard enough, and I've talked to players about this, it's hard enough to stop on a dime in your hockey career, let alone during a pandemic. How, how has that gone? Like, how, how has that process been for you as you work with players who are just freshly retired right now? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, one, every player retires. Mm-hmm. So if you could get Crosby on next and get him to retire, that would really make my job a lot easier. Um, <laughs> you know, Sid, keep playing. Everyone transitions. Not everyone transitions well. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want. Everyone's journey. We, we want it so it's like Usain Bolt crossing the finish line in a 100-yard dash, and there isn't a runner anywhere near him. Yeah. Finish. That's what I want for every player. And uh, so what I've found, it, it, for most guys, like the first time that NHL train leaves the station in 20 years, or for me it was 16, and you're not on it, it's kind of a scary, isolating moment, mm-hmm. right? The, stops ringing. You're not the most requested for interviews. You really aren't even invited to the con Smythe dinner anymore, mm-hmm. right? That was an annual. There are a whole lot of things that happen, but isolation's a big one. And then structure. As players, we all are wired with 10.30 morning skate, 12 o'clock meal, uh, 1 o'clock you have your nap, 4 o'clock bus, 4.30 PP meeting, 5 o'clock PK meeting, mm-hmm. 6.20 warm-up, 7.03 anthem, Rinse and repeat, do it again. Yeah. Structure's gone. So if I was to appeal to anybody that's out there going through COVID, what, what is the, the thing that you find most troubling? Isolation. Yeah. Uh, so hello, welcome to being an NHL player. Right. And structure. I mean, there's there's days where I've, I've, I've looked down and went, did I wear these sweatpants three days in a row? Or 
there's no structure. Right. I, I the other day, like those things in the closet, they're suits. You wear those when you get dressed up for like that. Suits? Know. I don't even, the concept <laughs> seems completely foreign to me now. We go to a square dance, honey. We're going to wear a suit. <laughs> so, so structure, isolation, uh, that's a big thing. And so for players and wives and families, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that uh, functional integration, if there is the right word, being functionally integrated with your world and spending if it's 27 to death or 30 till you die, yeah. you want the journey to be great. So that's been a big part of my role. And it's pretty simple, Craig, make tomorrow better than today. Yeah. If I can do that with every player, uh, then my, my job's complete every night when I go to bed. So it's, it's really interesting because um, when, when you talk to players that are recently retired, you know, people, you talk about the structure, that's a big thing. The other thing is, like, players will say, you don't realize how much is done for you, right? Like, they right down to handling money and, and benefits and all the stuff that they, for you, you know, if you're an elite player and you're a kid, you know, your parents are probably taking care of everything for you. Then you get to the team services and, and, um, and then all of a sudden that just stops. And, and, okay, like, I remember guys like, I don't know, even know how to open a checking account. And, you know, really like, and it's not to make light of it, but it's just like, that's, they, they, there's been almost like a, a bubble for years. And, and so do you guys have now have processes in place? Okay. This person's retired. We're just going to click into gear. Well, certainly what we have is all kinds of transition programs uh, built both on a scale level where we get to, you know, a couple hundred players. All they need is a coffee, right. which is a lovely <laughs> one. And uh, I wish I had one and a computer. And yeah. uh, we teach things. Uh, I'll give an example. So our, our forum series, uh, we did one on mental wellness through COVID. Jay Harris who was an NHL player, spoke to over 100 players about how do we create a normal when normal's not normal. Then uh, we had Gary Roberts and Maddie Nickel talk about physical wellness and they to over 100 players, wives, and kids about, you know, you can't go to the gym, but please, you know, you've got to continue to work out. Uh, we had one on medical marijuana, cannabis. A lot of people have uh, tried to find ways to get more sleep, less anxiety, but don't really know what they're looking at when they go into a store. Right. So we had, we had something on wills and estates. We're very complicated as a group. You know, we've got uh, players that have cottages in Muskoka, uh, but they might be living in Michigan yeah. and made their money. Lewis. So do I need one will, three wills? What do I need? Yeah. So, you know, take care of what's under the roof of your house. So all those transition programs, financial literacy, we're, we're involved in all of them and anybody can take part. And uh, we do have players. It's honest. You fall through the cracks and that's where we've got to pick up some of the pieces. But for the most part, uh, players retire and find purpose in their day and, uh, and take what they have learned on the ice and translated that off the ice whether it's the work ethic, unselfishness, being a good teammate, sacrifice, all those things that as a player, I don't care if you're five, your parents taught you that when you were with the Holy Redeemer Flyers. That just, that's the way it's going to be, son. You're going to pass the puck. Uh, I know that you don't want to pass it to your dying grandmother for her 50th, but you're going to pass the puck. Okay? <laughs> with an empty net, by the way, for your grandmother. So, <laughs> so those those things, if you can translate those off the ice, um, you know, but but you're right. You get chased around by agents and and people and financial advisors from the time you're 12 years old. Yeah. So it does become difficult at times. What do you find the biggest challenge working with the guys? 
purpose. I think yeah, everybody purpose. That's a good has one. a purpose, right? And I don't care if you're a professional bagpiper and if you're going to be uh, like I wanted to be, good luck. You're probably not going to be um, going to any butcher shop anytime soon. Swanson dinners might be the best thing you get. <laughs> But purpose, just every day you've got a reason for your feet to hit the ground, you to go out and make a difference in this world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, once guys find that purpose, uh, for the most part, uh, every day is uh, is an enjoyment. Every day's eventful. Every day's got something in it for them uh, where at the end of the day, they, they feel rewarded from what they've accomplished. You will never get a better job than playing in the NHL, ever. Yeah. So think about that for a second. Here you are, 18. Yeah. And your job will never be better. And it's only downhill. <laughs> right. Right. And you're going to play for six years or seven and try to live for 60. Mm. Everyone does it the opposite. They work for 50 and then try to live for the next 10 or 15. Yeah. We try to play for six and then think that we can keep this going for the next bunch of time. And so it, it does become a challenge. But it, hey, it's a challenge that most people uh, enjoy and most people champion. So pur purpose is a hard enough uh, thing to try to figure out normally, right? Like I think everybody has various struggles with that. How do you guide somebody that whose previous purpose was, okay, it was pretty clear, right? You, it's team success. It's building a hockey career. Um, all, you know, you remove all of that from the equation. Now purpose can mean anything in the universe. How do you walk somebody through that? Well, I think there's a couple things. One, it, it doesn't start the minute you retire. I mm -hmm. think when you're a player in the in the league, and I would say this to anyone who plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs, if you get a chance for a meeting with any executive in Toronto, mm -hmm. take it. Mm -hmm. Because there will come a day when they won't be lining up around Walmart to get your autograph. They'll go, yeah. who's he? He played with the Leafs? They'll know you're an NHL player, but they couldn't tell you what number you were. So I would say it starts when you're a current That's player. That's smart, yeah. And, and then I, I think the biggest thing is never, you know, it's like when I play goal. I never put the end result first, right? Started a game. I didn't say, I got to win. I never won when I thought that. I thought, make the first save, get through five minutes. Oh, okay. Go as far as I can see, and I can see a little further. Get through the first period, get through the second period. And then at the end of the game, the win is in front of me. I have a chance. So don't put the end result first. Go through the process. And that process will change. You, you will die as an NHL player. That's a hard death. And you will probably die four more times in your careers. I have. You know, uh, TSN, there's a death. Mm -hmm. The NHLPA, there's another one for me. Uh, Hockey Night in Canada, that was a big one. Yeah. Uh, NHL alumni. So you, you continue to just to find uh, ways to, again, get that purpose. Don't put the end result first. Uh, go as far as you can see. And when you get there, keep your eyes open. You see a little bit further. And so I think that for most of the guys uh, – I think that's the way most guys look at it and they don't know what they're going to do because you, you know, you've been to the moon and back. Right. Okay. What's next? Mars. Well, we ain't going there yet. So <laughs> it takes a, it takes a long time to figure out what you want to be and what you want to do. And, and honestly, uh, when you get all grown up, I don't even know if we're all grown up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just, I'm not, you know, uh, you may just wake up one day and go, gosh, I can't believe I'm 60. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, been a good journey. Uh, but uh, for the most part, uh, players, they, they transition pretty well. The ones that are bad are the ones you read about in the paper. Yeah. The, and those are the ones that, you know, we've really got to dig in for. Those are the acute interventions that require everybody, all hands on board. And quite frankly, uh, I'm not alone. I've got 3,800 people on my team. Mm -hmm. I have never mm -hmm. had an NHL player say to me, 
I don't want to help. It's been the opposite. Every single player has said, how can I help? Yeah. So I'm surrounded by a pretty darn good team. A better team than that with you and Jeff, I can tell you. Yeah, yeah, certainly better than what we got going on over here. On to you. You guys are dynamic. You might as well be sunny and share. <laughs> 3,800 people. Like that's like, you know, I mean, there's new alumni created every year. Like that's a steady stream of high performing individuals at your disposal. You know, when I played, uh, I sound like my grandfather. Yeah. When I played, uh, there was 350 players in the league. Now there's 900, mm. soon to be 950 once the Kraken get Kraken. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's a big group now. And, you know, we've got 1,300 European players. Mm-hmm. Put that into perspective, you got 1,200 Americans. And the Americans had a 60 year head start on the Euros and they've just taken over. Yeah. So, um, we don't have to. We don't have to belabor that point at all. I mean, the anyone who's done one game uh, is an alumni. So it's about thirty eight hundred that uh, yeah. are living. And you know, compared to the other sports, we're probably one of the smaller ones, right? Basketball is maybe a little bit smaller, but you know, football's got twenty four thousand alumni. I mean, that's a massive group to take care of. So, uh, but for the most part, guys that you know have played more than uh, two hundred games. You know, it's north of a thousand players, and I think those are the guys that they've made a craft of playing in the NHL. A guy that has played one game and had a cup of coffee, although that was a great cup of coffee, yeah, they probably moved on and didn't think that one game could support them the rest of their life. They're bankers, insurance guys, and and doing all the things that uh, we all thought we were going to do. And I was dancing around Western Michigan with a, a mullet and a mustache. I don't know what I was thinking then, but <laughs> my my life was going to be in business. Yeah. To turn for the better. Um, how does it work just in terms of, um, um, be, I mean, you mentioned the various levels of how many games you play versus how, your expectations. Is there a, a games played number where you get a certain pension? Like, how does it work just in terms of like, yeah, you, you so cross this line of, okay, I'm okay. Yeah, you know what? It's uh, you, You're vested at 160 games. Uh, for the guys that played uh, pre-2012, uh, you know, their pensions were all D.C. pensions, defined contribution pensions. So for each year you play, you get a certain amount of money that gets put into an account. At the end of your playing career, if that amount is X and you decide to take it in one year, your pension is now zero. Mm. So you got to be smart with that. Uh, the guys that played pre-86, they're on what they call a defined benefit pension. And, you know, that would be your Gordy Howes, your Ted Lindsay's, your Alex Delvecchio's. Uh, that group and their pensions, a dreadful would be an understatement. Yeah. They're probably looking at a pension around 7,000 Canadian a year. Oh, so geez. That, that, that might get you the flight to Disney for you and your family, and that's it. Yeah. Stop there. You don't even get the chance to wait in line. Uh, and, and the pensions have been enhanced. Pat Flatley and Ted Lindsay uh, came forward in 2004 and, and uh, did something for all of the players, about 142 at the time, which really um, – punches up your pension. It's not a pension. It's a gift yeah. uh, by players and the league. And uh, that helped 142 guys in 2004, and now it helps 605 guys. But if you're relying on your pension to retire as a player who retired pre-2012, um, you might want to get a second yeah, job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what I find interesting just from a business side is, so so now part of your the process is, okay, let's, let's try to brings I'm, I'm sure some revenue in so we can enhance that right like you you, you have these various and, and it's cool because you do have you have 3,800 willing participants that want to help each other out that are you know that that 
do that. So what does that look like from kind of an entrepreneurial standpoint where you're like, okay, let's, let's, what can we do to take advantage of this, this pool of people? Well, I would look at the names on the back of sweaters and say that your Gretzky's and your Lemieux's and your Bellabos and your Sundines and your Lidstrom's, like those carry a ton of weight. And, uh, and so would it be cool to put a Wayne Gretzky in a video game and have him on a line with Conor McDavid? You know, find someone who calls in and says that's a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then cut him off from the show. So <laughs> it's, it, uh, it just makes sense. Yeah. You know, what your hero was as a player, whether it was Doug Gilmore or Daryl Sittler or Wendell Clark, is not the same hero that your dad might have had, which would have been maybe a Dave Keon, you know, or, or someone of that ilk. So no matter what your age, there's a hero that you've looked up to and, and really revered as an NHL player. So anything that you can put a current player on, a pin, a bobblehead, mm -hmm. a, a beer bottle, with current guys can't do liquor, we can. Uh, we can do whiskey, which we've had a whiskey series that's been award-winning worldwide. Daryl Sittler's Whiskey won last year best whiskey in the world. Really? Which is incredible. And, uh, you know, we've had a number of players take part in that, everything from Guy Lafleur to Larry Robinson to Paul Coffey to – as I mentioned, Daryl Sittler, Wendell Clark. The newest one coming out is going to be uh, Grant Fior, Curtis Joseph, and Marty Berdur. And last year's was Mark Messier and Cornway. So, you know, these are big names and and products sell. And and so the, the the money that's generated every dollar goes back to providing benefits to players, whether it be a social worker, transition programs, uh, what what whatever we see a need for players mm -hmm. and the experts to me are the players. They tell me what they need and we provide it. I love that. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to have a pitch for you. I think you guys should do uh have you looked at this, the NFT space where these, the, all the digital coins and all that, there you go. I don't understand any of it, but I feel like there's something there for you. That's all. That's so we, Craig, we won't get you to negotiate the deal, then, but <laughs> you can just pay them with pom poms and I'll you cheer know, you on. I don't, that's, that's, that's my contribution. All done. Here oh, done. I got another NFT. trophy. Good. Uh, NDAs and NFTs, I'm, I'm pretty much sick to death of them. But yeah, no, we're always looking for, uh, and, and you know, all of the stuff that we do, we do with our partners in crime, the, the NHLPA. We, we do pretty much all of our work together. The NHL, we're a branch basically of the NHL in the sense, you know, their business side looks out for our side and it makes eminent sense. If you're a current player and you're Zdeno Chera and you have a hero, who's your hero? Well, it's Nick Lidstrom. So wouldn't that be good to put that on TV on Sportsnet and have these two players, player to player, talk about who their hero was? Because it was Chara to Lidstrom. Wow, we did that already. Okay, so that's a dumb idea. Craig, you come up with that later. Uh, but the, the all of that stuff with the league and the PA, we're always working to to find new revenue streams and new ways to, to again, every dollar we generate, I know where it's going. Yeah, I, that's amazing. That's great. Okay, um, you hinted at a couple things I want to get into, starting with Western Michigan, because we're a Western Michigan family here. And my parents both went there, my brother went there, and I just want to hear more about the mall. All right, Heels, how does an Ontario kid end up in Kalamazoo? That's, let, let's start there. Uh, well, you get on 401, you get to Windsor. You get to <laughs> 94, it's his highway. It's pretty popular. A lot of people from Michigan drive on it. Uh, you know, I was a kid uh, who was playing junior in, in Ontario in Pickering. 
Uh, my parents had moved there um, after World War II, came from Scotland. Okay. We, uh, bought a, we bought a house by a nuclear reactor, probably the only family in the history of buying a, a piece of property that lost money because, well, we only had to have a fence on three sides because the ball went over. You had to go into reactor one to get it. Kidding. Um, <laughs> I was playing in Pickering yeah. and, and had a chance to play major junior with the Peterborough Peets and Mike Keenan came in and asked me to play. But I said no, because our focus was let's be the first Healy to ever be educated. Mm. And college was the route. And so I was being chased by a number of schools and, uh, and they were all great opportunities. And Western basically told me, you come here, you'll play every game for four years. Mm. As, where do I sign? Yeah, right. so That's a good loved, campus, loved the school, a great uh, education program, uh, particularly in the business side of things. And, uh, and it, immediately there was no second choice. It was Western Michigan, had four great years there, a major in finance, a major in marketing. And as I, I finished early and really had nowhere to go, so I just kept going to school. And, uh, and it was just a great four years. Uh, you're right. Uh, the, there's a picture of me in, in Lawson Ice Arena. And every time an NHL scout who I played with or knows goes to that building, they take a picture and say, what's with the mustache? <laughs> I even recall uh, Danny DeKaiser got put into the hall, the Ring of Fame, not not yeah. the hall, just the Ring of Fame. And uh, I can recall doing a game with Hockey Night in Canada. He's sitting beside me in Detroit on the bench, and I'm like, "Okay, you went to Western, and you look like a rock star." <laughs> I went to Western, and my up in the uh, rafters is a picture of me, and I look like a porn star, Giggler. <laughs> No, um, it was a, a, a bad choice in my senior year, but but a, a great school, great education, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, my so my best friend growing up, his brothers played baseball there, and so we would just get accidentally invited to all the baseball alumni. You know, they, once a year they all go back, and it's this huge party. And so I grow like it was. We would just tag along and have what's that place? Waldo's. There's a place right there. We would just walk up. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been to Waldo's. Um, <laughs> wow is that must be is it a pizza place i mean I, uh yeah yeah they they, they serve uh I think oh, it's right the church i used to go to that's why i know it yeah uh yeah while those was great it's all kinds of like it just again uh four incredible years and for yeah. any kid in canada or the u.s that's thinking about playing junior yeah that's a great option but the U.S. side of things and to get a free education and to graduate. And, and honestly, that graduation took away the pressure of having to make the NHL. I didn't make it. Look it. I learned. So guess what? I'm going to earn. So I would have had a job. I would have done something else. Uh, but not having that education would have made, you know, making the NHL very important. And then that next step in my life even more critical. So uh, it set me up and set the table for, you know, the next phase of my life. And you think about what you, what you studied there. And I, I mean, I don't know how much of it's paying off now, but like you look at the jobs you've done, either you work with the PA or with the alumni, like that's all very applicable. You know, that's, yeah. it's, I would, I'm a college hockey person. So I would like, I'm always like, that seems like such a smart route. If you're not, you know, Connor McDavid or whatever, I get that. Well, you know, and, and that's, that's the big lure, right? Every parent that, uh, my son's going to be Connor McDavid. Not many right, that's right. make the NHL and, and really uh, flourish. I mean, look at how many 18-year-olds this year that are in the NHL that just kind of are 
it's a bit of a teenage wasteland, right? You're just, you can't find yourself. It's a man's league, a man's game. Uh, but, you know, four years of free education and a top level of compete uh, and as, as scouted as any of, of the major juniors, or anything in Europe. And, you know, I look at the program now and what they've done to the arena and what, the, you know, college hockey is basically the professional side of things minus getting paid. That's it's right. High level, um, you know, the, the crowds, the attention, scouting. It, it's a, an incredible route for any kid to go. Who was the best college player you played against? Uh, you know, I, I, well, the funniest one, I think, was, <laughs> was Chelios. Oh, gosh. I can remember we, we would you go into Wisconsin and, um, you know, the, the odd fight would break out. Yeah. Instead of Chelly, um, you know, getting involved, he would find all the gloves that are on the ice that you wore. Because you're on the other team, yeah. Throw them into the crowd. <laughs> and good luck getting those gloves back. Like you had no chance of getting those gloves back. Uh, but you know, you know, kind of that at the start of me going to college. It was really the start of players making the NHL. The Adam Oates, mm, yeah, right. The, that that ilk of player really didn't get a chance to. Uh, Again, it wasn't as well scouted as it is today. So we kind of were that breakthrough group. Yeah. That, wow. So you can let this kid play till he's 22 and 23, and then you can take a look at him after he's matured. I don't have to decide at 18, can he make my team or not? And I bring him over from Sweden. He can't. So I'm just going to go send him to Muskegon okay, or Toledo. Good luck with that one. Have a good time. You might as well go back to the salt mines. <laughs> So uh, you've played for, I mean, you've played for some legends in the game as uh, in the coaching side, but I wanted to start with playing for Pete Mahovlich. What was that like in Toledo? Um, I was only there for a short period of time, but I, I do recall, you know, Pete was having a hard time with the team and decided he was just going to suit up and play the third period with us. <laughs> hey, I don't know if this is normal. But oh my gosh. the first I've ever seen. Uh, but Pete, you know, a, a genuinely players guy. He was yeah. just a good, good person in every way and uh, loved to have his fun. And trust me, when you're in Toledo, there's not much to look up to. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we had we had some, uh, you know, Donnie Waddell was on the team. You know, it was a long time, a thousand games as general manager. He was a heck of a defenseman. Uh, but, you know, back, back, then you know you're you didn't have the LA Kings didn't have a farm club that they fully operated. I mean, split it with the Rangers, so you had one goalie from the Rangers and one goalie from the Kings, then hmm. two defensemen from the Rangers and two from the Kings. So it wasn't like you had a roster of twenty three <clears throat> of all um, you know kind of prospects that you were going to take a look at. You know, um, my goalie partner for a little bit was Glenn Hanlon. Hmm. So here's this. 22 year old from Western Michigan, and I'm going to beat out Glenn Hanlon, who's played 500 games in the NHL. Yeah. And Pierre LaRouche was a 50 goal scorer with the New York Rangers. He was in the minors. Huh. Well, back then, you didn't have waivers, you didn't have arbitration. You basically you had no rights. If they wanted to send you to Wuhan to go play, you went to Wuhan. Simple as that. So uh, the, the minor league teams were exceptional teams and tough to make. And so that's what made the International Hockey League, the IHL, 
so popular because there was a, a great group and crop of players playing there as well. The yeah. IHL was so good. Like that's where, like I, you know, when I grew up, it was people were, like followed it. And that so that team we're referencing, I should have done a better job setting it up. Was the Toledo Gold Diggers? Great name. Mm-hmm. You got Pete Mahovlich, you had D- Donnie Waddell, who. But I looked at the Hockey DB to make sure I had the roster. He was like a really good offensive defenseman. Like he he was over a point a game, Don. Incredible. Yep. Um, I had no idea. Claude Noel was on yeah, that team. It uh it was it was uh you know, although I will say that it was probably the bleakest moment of my professional career because that's not where I wanted to aspire to be. You know, Toledo? Go, yeah, not really. Um and I, I have one picture and I, I don't think it's ever seen the light of day somewhere in this house, hidden in a book. I've got it hidden. So when I die, make sure you go through all my books. I will. Okay. Uh, and it's a picture of me in a Toledo sweater. And you'd swear that uh, it, it's a mug shot. And I was just arrested for some major <laughs> crime, breaking into the Capitol or something, but not a glimmer of happiness yeah. in my face. Uh, but you know what? I ended up back in New Haven and had two great years there. Again, great teams in New Haven. Lots of great players. Uh, pretty much our entire defensive group made the NHL. And from, you know, Steve Duchesne to Shell Samuelson to Kenny Hammond, like you, you name it. Like these were, these were NHL guys that stuck around for a long time. And, uh, you know, Robbie Fatorik was the coach. It was a real moment of, of me trying to, you know, figure out what it takes to be a pro. And, uh, you know, one example, I remember one of the better shooters on the team lines at the end of practice, you know, line 10 pucks up hash marks and, Robbie would say to me, okay, how many are you going to stop? Uh, this guy was a pretty good scorer in, in Portland Winterhawks. So I, uh, seven out of 10. And he absolutely tore my head off. That's a lousy answer. Which three are you going to let in then? The answer is I'm stopping 10 out of 10. Oh, okay. And that, that was his psychology that I needed to make a difference. But uh, yeah, we, uh, we had a really good group there. And, and, you know, one of the guys who was working with Robbie was a gentleman by the name of Frank Lodato. Mm-hmm. He was a team psychologist for the Miami Dolphins when they went undefeated. And really? he came to New Haven and worked with a whole bunch of players. He and eventually went on as an older uh, guy to work with the Boston Bruins when they won their cup against the Vancouver Canucks. But, but he, he taught me a, a ton about that mental preparedness and, and how to be ready to play at an NHL level. Hmm. Um, and there's so much that has to fall into place for you to get a chance to play, stay, and stick in the NHL. What did uh, Do you remember anything specifically that Frank taught you? Well, I think it was a preparation. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, I, I'd go into games, you know, rolling the dice. Is better. <laughs> well, I lost my fortune. Um, just that whole how to prepare to play a game, focus, that, that mental side. You know, we can all – quantitate the physical side how tall are you certainly with my height at five nine liar five eight <laughs> i would never get drafted you know you've got to be six seven to get drafted as a goalie now almost so the physical side we can all quantify but it's that intangible side of the ledger you can't and that's where scouts make mistakes on players you know it's like a game of uh of, of uh, stick hockey in the hotel at a hockey tournament for the silver sticks you know, two kids, rolled up sock, two little sticks. Who wants that more? Who wants the puck more than than you do? If he wants it more, that's the intangible side of the ledger that says he might be a better player, even though he might be bigger, faster, tougher, stronger. But 
you you have that intangible. Yeah. So he worked on that intangible side for me and, and made a difference again to prepare to go wear, you know, yellow pants and a yellow sweater and yellow helmet and get beat up all around the league <laughs> when I play with the LA Kings following my new Haven days. Uh I feel like those um, silver stick kids are always outside my hotel room when I'm on the road. I feel like they follow me around playing with the sock right outside my room. There yep. must be a, a magnetic. Uh, before I get too far to the NHL side, when did you give up the bagpiper, professional bagpiper aspirations? Or are we still hanging on? Is that still uh, still on the bucket list? Of- no, no, it's uh, it's not really on the bucket list. Uh, I've, I've danced around with that part of my career for a long, long time. Mm. And uh, gosh, it, it it just doesn't quite pay well. <laughs> you know, it, uh, the average salary is not where you need it, huh? On the uh, bagpiper circuit, it just is not. Uh, but you know that that whole piping thing for me, um, you know, it's taken me all around the world. Hmm. You know, taking me to uh, Vimy Ridge for the 90th recommemoration of the War Memorial. It's taking me to the D-Day beaches for the 50th. Uh, it has taken me to Carnegie Hall. Uh, we formed at Carnegie Hall. Our last song of the night, it was the first year of 9-11 to, to raise money for um, for the 9-11 fund. And last song of the night, we had all the lights go off in the building and everybody put a ranger sweater on. The lights came up and we played New York, New York. And uh, Mike Richter was there. Brian Leach was there. Uh, they joked that it's the last time the Rangers got a standing ovation. Uh, only when we won the cup, they were struggling at the time. Yeah, but you know, certainly awesome. And and then to get a chance to play a number of concerts with Paul McCartney, we played uh, Mullick Entire. I don't recognize that name. Is he? Uh, he's a well. Uh, he was in this group. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, the Beatles. That's yeah, the pretty Beatles. amazing. Holy Beatles. cow! They were around for a little bit. Uh, but I and I always joke that I'm the fifth Beatle. But uh, mm-hmm. to get a chance to play with him, to meet him. Uh, and, uh, you know, his, his song set always is the same at the end, you know, the encore, they just don't make up on stage. They already have it planned, right. uh, but band on the run yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, Tire, which is the one we played and then let it be. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I can recall in Toronto, the last time we were there and, uh, I'm below the stage, but behind it and listening to him play, let it be as his last song, just, you know, really, really incredible stuff. A Vimy Ridge touching uh, for Canadians. That was our birth of a nation. That was us making a difference and deciding the fate of World War One. I. I can tell you the front lines, you could throw a football from one to the other. So the brave soldiers that went through that, I just can't even imagine what they were going through. Uh, so proud to be part of all those things. But again, as an NHL player, uh, they're not inviting me. I'm one of the 3,800 you don't invite. I don't have 99 on the back of my sweater. So <laughs> you get a chance to do all those things uh, for an instrument. You know, my parents said, you should probably try playing this. Hmm. I thought it was kind of goofy to do it. Um, turns out it's been a pretty good passion for me. How old were you when you first picked up a, the bagpipes? Uh, young. And then I, I set it down and, and thought, you know what? This is kind of crazy. I'm certainly not going to travel to Los Angeles or New Haven or Toledo with bagpipes. I mean, really? <laughs> You know, do I need people banging on my hotel wooden door? You know, yeah. shut the f up. I'm, I've had that happen many times in Dallas. In fact, one time, um, and, and I just you know kind of set it down and then picked it up uh, when I was in New York. There was you know a guy from the NYPD who was he's playing your typical American fight songs, and, yeah. and I asked him, you know, are those hard? He, oh, never be able to play them. Oh, can I try them? What shoulder do they go on? Yeah, yeah. So I put them on my shoulder. 
and had played a song that was about 136 beats a minute. His jaw dropped, and the next day I had a set of pipes and a uniform for the NYPD. No way. I had a chance to play in a couple of St. Paddy's Day parades, which basically, for those that don't know, St. Paddy's Day is march up Fifth Avenue, take a left, and stumble up third, because that's where <laughs> the bars are. So I got a chance to do that, which was, which was kind of fun. But yeah, it's been a great journey with with the instrument, and we've got a world-class pipe band, and it's, again, you just, you've transformed your NHL team to another team, mm-hmm. as well, you know, kind of pulling the rope in the same way. I, like... This this shows, um, I guess, how whatever biases we have. I'm always like surprised when I see you know the, the a social media post and it's Chris Kreider sitting down and playing a piano beautifully, right? Or you know what I mean? Like you see these hockey players and all of a sudden they they have this other high end skill musically. Did you you ever run into other players where you're like these guys are like that were really into music in terms well, of I, performing? No question. Jay Harrison's a great one. He plays hmm. a number of instruments. You know, I can really? recall sitting in San Jose in the lobby and he was sitting at the piano in the lobby. Mm. dancing away on the on you know the the piano like it was nothing mm. so yeah i mean that that's the thing right guys have so much talent that you know they just kind of keep it to themselves right i'm not you know jay's not dancing around bowmanville and coburg and whitby with a piano on his back going you want to hear a song right, right i really don't have my bagpipes in my car and you know the first person i see on the street corner flip open my trunk want to hear a song <laughs> <laughs> i would if i could play the bagpipes that would be me yeah. everyone but, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of guys that have incredible talent, you know, and just it you you need you need a hobby. Let's face it. And uh, you know, back in the '70s, it was your hobby was lunch, and that almost became dinner. And then there were times where you didn't even get the last go train home, which right. would be the green limo that goes between Toronto and all the areas east and west of the city, because it's the lunch became dinner became a midnight snack. Right. <laughs> it's not good for anybody. Yeah. Playing a piano or a bagpipe might be a better hobby. Just saying. <laughs> Sorry. All right. I, I, I highlighted three coaches, Pat Quinn, Al Arbor, and Mike, Mike Keenan. I mean, these are some some heavyweights in the world of coaching. Um, who who did you enjoy or who did you learn from the most? Uh, easy answer. Al Arbor mm. was the best coach um, I ever, ever had a chance to uh, to play for. Uh, he, he had that way of – you know, when things weren't going well, he was like your father, you know, the arm would come around you and he would kind of try to get you through it. Um, most players look at him as a second dad. I don't think you're going to find many that won't. When things weren't, were going well and you were top of the world, there were times it, he would stick his foot so far up your ass, you tied his, his shoelace outside of your teeth because he knew it's <laughs> okay, time to be hard on this player. He knew which players needed coaching, which players needed pat in the back, which players needed kick in the ass. He just knew it. He had the ability to walk into a room, speak to the group, and have everybody think that they were speaking directly to them. He didn't single anyone out. Uh, and, you know, even our upset of Pittsburgh in 93, when they were uh, an incredible team, and I was with the Islanders, were a bunch of young, brash guys. You know, he, he broke that series down shift by shift. All he wanted us to do was tie a shift against Lemieux. That's it. Hmm. And if we can do that when we got to game seven, all I need is for us to win one shift. And it happened. David Volek scored in overtime. There's one shift we won. Wow. Uh, I mean, it would have been nice for the Penguins to share the puck a little bit more in that series because <laughs> we needed our own because we didn't touch it. Yeah. Uh, but Al was that way. He had presence. 
Paquin had presence. He come into a room and it was stop what you're doing because he's speaking. And he, again, had a way of speaking to the group, a different speak. Uh, Pat was big into the military stuff and he would bring a chair in the room and turn it backwards and talk to us about the British box plus one, how the Brits won this war with this defense system and we're going to utilize the defense system and and you'd be, you know, out the door. We are charged. Here we go. And then you'd have the Russian group come to me and go, Glenny, what's he talking about? <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, but he, again, he had a presence. And and Mike Keenan, uh, trust me, he had a presence as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mike had a way of pushing everybody to their limit. If you didn't set a limit, he just kept pushing. And that's where a lot of players had a hard time because – players were always taught listen to your coach he knows but he knows best and if you never push back he ju- he would he'd keep pushing uh, but he has gotten the most out of a lot of players uh, for all the teams he's coached and in New York he delivered with our group something that three generations had never seen grandfather son and the grandson had never seen a championship in 54 years and he was the coach that delivered it one year after them not making the playoffs so uh, forever, we'll you know I'll be impassioned to the fact that he was the guy that led the ship. That day one of training camp, uh, he brought us into a room and showed us a, a film of the um, Miracle Mets with the parade going down Broadway. Basically, said you want this? This could be yours in nine months. And then going into Game Seven against the Vancouver Canucks, brought us in the room. No big speech. No you know win this one for Rudy. No, and it wasn't Rudy Giuliani, Rudy, the football player. Yeah, because um, Rudy was the, the mayor then. Uh, he showed us that that film that we had watched nine months earlier before we went to London, England for training camp and said, in 60 minutes, this could be yours. How bad do you want it? That's the intangible side of the ledger we talk about. And sure enough, uh, 60 minutes later, um, we were planning our parade down Broadway. And one of the best parades uh, I think you'll ever see anywhere millions of people i i wonder through COVID if there'll ever be a parade like that ever again it certainly was a little better than the new jersey devils going around the parking lot of the brendan burn arena (laughs) who are the four headless horsemen oh baby Uh, i tell you that's my bob cole impression we used to do bob cole all the time um around bob cole and he would look at us and go are you mimicking me? Uh, <laughs> we are. Yeah. So uh, the four headless horsemen, when um, the Islanders were in a complete state of flux, which basically uh, they were from the time um, ownership, the original owner sold the team. We had four owners come in and they were going to reinvent the wheel with Islander hockey, mm-hmm. except they came upon uh, um, two pretty <laughs> solid souls in Bill Torrey and, Al Arbor, you ain't changing much of anything. And so there was a real detest for this ownership group, the four headless horsemen. And uh, and so Al didn't really have much time for them. And they desperately wanted to trade David Volick all year. You know, why are we keeping this player? Let's trade him. We don't need him. And of course, you know, David Volick scores game seven, overtime, Pittsburgh Penguins, Mario Au revoir. Okay. And we're standing by the bus in Pittsburgh and the owners came up and you know, really excited. We had won. 
and, you know, came up to Al, congratulatory in every way about Al's great coaching uh, job, considering he, you know, Pen, the Penguins and Scotty Bowman. Like, there's that's a pretty good mix. And, uh, you know, Al kind of looked at them with, with, again, no respect for them whatsoever and, and said, what do you think of David blank Volick now? And blank off. There's your four headless horsemen. And then, you know, later that year, after we, we got beat by Montreal, they went on to win the cup. Uh, Pat Latley, my good buddy, decides at the year-end dinner that he's going to write my contract demands, because I was a free agent, on a napkin mm-hmm. and hand it to the four headless horsemen and say, if you want to sign Glenn, here's what it'll take. And they crumpled up the napkin and threw it at me. So <laughs> I pretty much knew that my days as an Islander were over and uh, I wasn't going to stick around and ride off into the sunset with the four headless horsemen. Oh, and I oh, couldn't even tell you what their names are, uh, but they're clearly not in hockey anymore. <laughs> I don't know their names either. I probably should have looked that up. It's never good in a negotiation when the napkin gets thrown back at you. I don't know a lot about business. I don't even know what Platts wrote on the napkin, but, you know, <laughs> you know that was it. Uh, the times were up. But, you know, everything happens for a reason. And, you know, that Islander team was good, but we yeah. weren't good in the Stanley Cup. Uh, we were lucky to get by Pittsburgh. It was just, you know, Al Arbor and Hart and and guys like Ray Ferraro and three young defensemen and Kasparitis and Malikoff and Dennis Vasky and Tom Curvers and, you know, Tom Fitzgerald, I mean, Claude Wazell, like it was just a Benny Hogue, just a bunch of good guys yeah, uh, trying to find a way to will it through and get it over the line. But the Rangers were good enough to win a cup. Yeah. And you see that day one of training camp, you know, I looked around and thought, this team's at a different gear than I played at before. And we went to London, England, training camp started, played the Leafs, who were a final four team the year before, and just dusted them off like they weren't even in the NHL and at that point I knew we got a chance and you know it took a little bit to get used to Mike Keenan uh, Attilo the Hun is hard to get used to uh, but once we got used to him uh, we we pretty much uh, danced all the way through as president trophy winners and and it wasn't until we got to Vancouver and New Jersey in round three that really we got pushed to the will yeah um, all right, we're, we're almost running out of time, so we might have to lightning round these last few topics. But I did because this is an expansion draft year. Uh, you, I mean, you lived through that as a player twice, being you know moved in an expansion process. What, what's it like from the player's perspective? You know, we sit here almost coldly from the media and we list guys that are going to be exposed, and hey, here's who Seattle needs to take, and and uh, you know, it's it's kind of a, it's a fascinating process from a roster construction and built team building aspect, but. If you're a player and you're hearing your name called and hearing your name called again, what was that process like for you? It was really easy because uh, <laughs> after we, we played with the Islanders, um, that year a bunch of us went to Ireland, rented a, a place off the West Coast in Connemara County. Mm. We had no phone. We didn't have a cell phone. Back in 93, anyone have a cell phone? No. no. Those white ones with the big, long antenna? <laughs> oh, I didn't have that. So uh, I got picked up in the expansion draft by Anaheim. Uh, they called. I never answered the phone. I didn't have a phone. So why would I answer? I, I, there was no papers. I right. certainly didn't go to a pub to read a paper. Uh, you know, we were going to the pubs to get into trouble with the seven guys we had with us. All of someone to get in trouble with. And then the next day or two days later, Tampa Bay got to pick one player from the expansion draft as per the rules the year before. And Tampa Bay picked me. Again, no phone, no idea. Didn't have a clue. I got picked up by anybody. And then uh, again, they tried to call. 
And, you know, I can just imagine what they're thinking. Like, this a-hole won't call me back. Right, like, right. This guy doesn't even want to play for us. And then was traded to the Rangers. And the whole time, not knowing, I thought I was an Islander. I, I'm in Ireland. I didn't <laughs> even know I was on the planet. I mean, uh, at by 1230, we had so many beers, I didn't know I was even in Ireland. Um, <laughs> Oh, basically, I went to one of the oldest pubs in Ireland, the Brazen Head, and I could see Pat Flatley coming towards me, you know, the big buffalo head, and he had some business he had to talk about. And he told me, he said, you know what, uh, I just talked to my mom, and you're a New York Ranger. And I thought, come on. I mean, the most hated rivalry, Islander Ranger, I'm a Ranger. And uh, he made his mom go get the paper, and there it was in the paper, and that he's the one who delivered the news. And then, you know, about a week later... <coughs> Landed back in North America and then made the calls that I had to make. But I was a New York Ranger. Had no idea. That's amazing. Uh, original Duck. Uh, I didn't get a ring from Tampa Bay. They, they won the cup. They didn't get me a ring. I was on their team. I feel like, yeah, you're, uh, you're being shorted. Should I get a ring? I've mentioned it to Dave Anderchuk. He's not providing me one. Uh, but, yeah, those, those were uh, times that, hey, I was uh, oblivious to all of it. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? Again, everything happens for a reason. So the Rangers were a pretty good fit for me. Um, so your advice would be to any player who thinks he might get uh, exposed in the expansion draft to go to Ireland, find a pub in the middle of the countryside. I go with seven guys though, because you got to go seven guys. If you go with two, you know, you, they might get up one day and you know not feel up to the the game of being in Ireland. Yeah. And if you go with enough, uh, there's there's always a way to mess about, uh, but. One of the best trips ever. And and that group that we went with to this day, we're still best friends. And, uh, and uh, you know, golf, the, the country itself was fantastic. So book a vacation right around the expansion draft. Don't pick up your phone. And if you come back and you're still on your same team, if you're not, <laughs> you picked up anyways. Who cares? Go, I'll go have fun with the Kraken. That's great. How – how do you get back to Scotland? Like you, you mentioned your family is, you know, your first generation, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, my dad really was the only one of 11 kids that came over and okay. left. The rest decided to stay in this place called Clyde bank, which, uh, basically it, it um, it's, it's, uh, South of Glasgow until you smell it. And then East of Glasgow till you step in it. Okay. All right. Very nice. Okay. <laughs> John Brown shipyards, and that's where they built a lot of the ships. But uh, in the world, in World War One and Two, mm. uh, but you know what? We 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 do get back. It's uh, you know, again, the food is a dare, so don't go for the food. Yeah, right. You know, that's the way Scottish people are. You know, you'll know eat this. Oh, I will watch this haggis. Here we go. <laughs> so, uh, but it's a, a great countryside. The Trossachs, beautiful, and and we love going. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a getaway. Um, you know, when I was younger, I'd take my kids to Disney so I could teach them how to wait in line. Scotland is a, is a much different wait in line. It's a much better place. <laughs> um, all right. Last thing. And it's I, I found it interesting. I didn't, I didn't know this um, this phrase. But at Western Michigan, the, the football coach who's now in Minnesota, his his big, big thing is to row the boat. I'm forgetting his name, the football coach. But it was, you know, the concept. We're all in this together. We're rowing. And Harbaugh? Um, no, at, at Western, the the, the uh, oh, what's his name? Anyways, his big thing is row the boat as a team. We're rowing together. You guys had a heave ho in, with the Rangers, right? Yeah, it's what actually is, on, it's on our Stanley Cup ring. What is that well, like when you have a phrase or something that unifies? Can you what's what, where did that start and what does it mean to kind of have something that you're all rallying around as a group? Well, the one great thing we had with Mark Messier as our leader, one of the greatest leader in sport, 
Everybody mattered. Didn't matter if you were the guy who picked up the towels, like Benny Patrizzi, who had done it since 1941. Mm. He was injured in World War II, and that's all he did. Pick up towels, and he would shine your shoes, and you look in your, your locker and go, these are mine? Wow. Really? These look new. And uh, But everyone mattered. And so Eddie Olachek, who came over and was, you know, 500-goal scorer, all-star in the league, he didn't really have a role that Mike wanted to trust him with. And so, uh, you know, his role with our team was to stretch the team every day. Hmm. And he took great and, – and the stretches were a thing of hilarity um, because it was a chance for everybody to just be giving it to each other as we stretched as a group. Yeah. And at the end of that stretch, uh, if we weren't picking on Nick Kiprios or we weren't picking on Mike Hartman or we weren't picking on another player – uh, we all grabbed an oar together and we pulled and it was the three chants of hefo, hefo, hefo. And it meant so much to our team in the sense that we bonded that uh, it it was on our Stanley Cup ring. And so everyone had, whether it's the bite of the carrot that the Oilers had on their ring, right? The carrot that's in front of you or us having hefo or, uh, and even on the inside of the ring, yeah, 1940 and it's crossed off because every building we went in, chanted 1940 and uh, even when we won the cup our fans chanted 1940 and that's the last time i've heard that chant that's awesome heels this was so much fun thanks for doing this Craig. anytime uh for you and punch doors always open so, <laughs> and uh any any bagpipe serenades um happy to play i know punch has a real couple good favorite songs that he loves me to play uh like um far away have you heard that one Far away? Mm -mm. Yeah. Well, when you learn it, uh, like Punch says to me, play it further away, would you please? Get a <laughs> further away. Oh, that's great. Awesome. Right, yeah, cheers, Bob. I want to thank Glenn Healy for joining the program. He's doing great work. Um, I, I mean, it doesn't get a ton of attention, right? Like, who's there's not a million people wondering uh, what's going on with the NHL Alumni Association. And But when you talk to him, you see the passion that's there. You see the good works. And, and it was fascinating to me to hear really just how little for years these retired players um, were receiving. It, I mean, it's, it's a real problem. And it's awesome to see somebody step in and um, take charge. And also just it's a great story he, he, told, he told about his playing career. Always a fun conversation with Heels. Uh, I would love to have him back on. I felt like that was one of those where we were just getting warmed up and the hour was gone. So, Glenn, thanks again for doing this. Thanks for all the hard work you put in for the players. It's it's really cool to see that organization, I mean, transform, really, in the last couple of years and, and potential for so much more. So that's awesome. Um, again, a reminder, if you want to go to theathletic.com slash full60 to get a dollar subscription to The Athletic, um, I can't tell you. Uh, trade deadline. There's so much good stuff coming. And it's funny, I was just looking at the standings. Um, we were talking the other day about the National Predators because they were the team that as we started our trade deadline coverage, everybody was talking about the Predators and what were they going to do? And maybe they trade Philip Forsberg, but for sure at home. And, and it, you know, we did our first trade board and there was a lot of Predators on there. And now they've rattled off I don't know how many in a row since uh, as I sit here and record this, but the Predators are now sitting in a playoff spot. And and so now naturally the speculation becomes, all right, should Nashville sell? Should they hold? Um, I did a radio show with my good friend Joe Rexroad, who is in Nashville. Uh, he's a columnist for The Athletic. 
And I think the, the phrase he was using was a soft sell was, you know, move out some of the UFAs, but not the, the players under contract. And I have to say, I completely disagree with that strategy. Um, any of these teams that are, that are going on runs, like this notion that, hey, we want to see how we're doing in the two weeks leading up to the deadline, and maybe we can climb into that last playoff spot. Um, and, and that's going to impact what kind of long-term deals. I, I think that's, I, I don't think that's great asset management. And the, the GM I would point to who I think does this better than any other GM is Doug Armstrong in St. Louis. He is so uh, definitive in his approach. And if if the Blues don't look like cup contenders, they can be in a playoff spot and he'll sell. Like he, he did it with Kevin Shattenkirk a couple years ago uh, with um, Paul Stastny. He did that. It, like those were those weren't bad blues teams that he was selling from. He was he had somebody who had the long term vision of the blues uh, at the forefront, not how are they playing these last couple weeks. And so if I'm, you know, I would never tell David Poyle what to do, I, <laughs> but I mean, I can suggest my opinion here. And I would say if you're Nashville or if you're Columbus or if you're Arizona and you 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 win three straight going into the trade deadline, who cares? Who cares? You have to make a decision for the best of the team. And, and right now, the the price for Ekholm probably isn't going to be any higher than in, you know it's it's not going to go up as he gets closer to the end of that contract. His value is is his contract, his play, and the fact that you're getting two postseasons out of him. You got to you got to make that trade. Uh, if you're Columbus, you have to you have to trade some of these UFAs. Uh, like uh, if you're Arizona, you need to get some picks back. Holy cow! You can't worry about sneaking into the fourth spot to get your clock clean by Vegas. Um, I don't know. I I like I, I think this happens every year where people are like, well, we'll see how it's going to go. And I always admire the GMs that come out and say, you know what? This isn't the team. Like this is not the group. Um, and, and it's hard to say that you're all trying to win now, but especially when the fans aren't in the building in a year, in a super weird year like this, I am selling. And I think that's that's the play, if anybody cares. Well, I don't really get off track. Um, so anyways, that's all to say you should be following what we're writing at The Athletic uh, during the trade deadline. And if you're not subscribing, to go to theathletic.com slash full60 to get in for a dollar a month. You can't beat that. All right, a couple of things before we wrap up. Uh, Drew Doughty, always a great guest, always a great interview. He was on with... Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun on the Athletic Hockey Show Two-Man Advantage Edition. Drew is ever quotable. Um, and it's been interesting to see what the Kings have done this year. They're better than people think. Um, Doug McLean joins Mike Russo on Straight from the Source uh, this week at The Athletic. And also, if you're just not checking out The Athletic Hockey Show in general with Mendez and McIndoo and, and Haley and everything they're doing, go listen to that show. Subscribe to it. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. They do a great job there. And lastly, um, if you want to leave comments in the comment section on the Athletic app, I always love checking those out, reading them, get feedback from you guys. And also, if you're not, if you haven't rated and subscribed to the full 60 on Apple, that helps me out a ton. If you could do that, I would greatly appreciate it. All right, that's it. Thanks, Heels, again for joining the podcast. Thank you for listening. And have a great week.